In our series on future events, we began with, if you remember, the rapture of the church. We're waiting for Jesus' return at any time, morning, noon, or night, to catch us up and away. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us of that event and charges us to comfort one another with that hope, the hope of the believer, the rapture of the church. Secondly, then, we discuss the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the judgment of condemnation, but the judgment of commendation. It's an occasion to reward those who have run the race, finished their course, and kept the faith. It's the occasion when we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's also the time when we will receive crowns and cast those crowns back at Jesus' feet, saying we are not worthy, but you are worthy. And after the rapture of the church, After the judgment seat of Christ will be, number three, this evening, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now think about a wedding with me, whether it's another's wedding or whether it's your own. I remember this special day on June 26, 1999, when I was wed to my wife, Kim. We were married at her home church in Hartford, Connecticut on a hot summer day. There was no air conditioning in the church, and I had written a song to sing to her as part of that wedding ceremony. And it was not part of the program, but I went to the, to the grand piano and I sat down. My friend had his guitar, he was next to me, and I began to play and sing to my bride. It was very romantic, I assure you. Can you all say aw, aw, yeah. It was really romantic. And I, I played a song there, I sang to her with my, my friend on his guitar, and uh, we had a reception in the basement of that church, and then we drove away in my uncle's BMW Z3 with the top down. It was the best part of the day. No, that's not, that's not true, no. And we took off in that getaway car, and uh, it, was, it was a great day. Today, of course, people spend tens of thousands of dollars on their wedding ceremony, and and they're a big deal, and family and friends and well-wishers are invited to attend the ceremony and give gifts and enjoy the food at the reception. But, But think with me for a moment of the greatest of all weddings, not your own, the greatest of all weddings, one that will be out of this world in heaven above when Jesus takes his bride, the church, to himself. And think of the celebration event described here in Revelation 19. Will you look with me? Revelation 19, let me begin in verse number one. After these things, I, this is John the Revelator, heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged her, the blood of his servants shed by her. And they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise God, all you his servants and all who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying alleluia for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was Handel that used these early verses as the basis for his hallelujah chorus. And imagine the sound of that event there in those verses, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll discuss this future event. God, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding by your Holy Spirit. As you illumine the scripture text to us, Lord, give us a great longing for this day. Not just the rapture of the church, not just the judgment seat of Christ, but that wedding ceremony and and then the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. For us to fully appreciate what is described for us here in in these verses, specifically in verses seven through nine, will be the focus of our study. We we really need to understand the way weddings were conducted in ancient times and in ancient times among the Jews. And so generally speaking, we could break down a wedding or a marriage into three parts. First, there was a betrothal or an engagement of the couple to be wed. Number one, the betrothal to the bride. Now in modern Western civilization, we fall in love and then we get engaged to the one we love. But in the ancient Near East, a, a couple was betrothed to be married, often by arrangement of their parents or some tribal leaders, and then the couple had to learn to love. And I don't know that I would advocate for prearranged marriages today. However, I would argue that everyone must learn what it really means to love long after they even get, get married. But nonetheless, in ancient times, a, a pre-marriage commitment was made, this betrothal. And the pre-marriage betrothal commitment was so significant that its promise was considered equivalent to the marriage vows themselves. So when Joseph who was betrothed to Mary, thought to break their betrothal or their engagement, he didn't need to just call off the wedding. Joseph would have needed to give her a bill of divorcement. And so the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And the betrothal to the bride, not just in the cultural context, but also biblically to, to the Lord. Now, of course, as part of the arranged marriage, a dowry would be paid. And uh, you remember that Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel. Um, Laban then gave Jacob Leah instead of Rachel, and so Jacob worked another seven years for, for Laban. And at the risk of confusing the, the groom and the bride and the, the master-slave metaphors, uh, know that we are bought with a price. We as the bride of Christ were purchased by the shed blood of of Jesus Christ. He paid for our redemption from the slave market of sin. That's the one analogy of the the master slave. But then he also bought us paying that dowry as, as it were by shedding his blood to make us his bride because he loved us. Which by the way, a, a quick insight here. Why does the Bible call this the marriage of the lamb? You see it there in verse number seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come 
You see it also there in verse number nine, the marriage supper of the lamb. Why isn't it the marriage of the creator? That was our discussion this morning. Or why isn't it the marriage of the king, a royal wedding? After all, in verse number 11, Jesus returns as conquering king. It's called the marriage of the lamb or the marriage supper of the lamb because Jesus gave himself as the lamb of of God. And so after that betrothal or if you'll allow engagement period was over, the bridegroom would then come for his bride. This is number two, the retrieval of the bride. There's the betrothal to the bride and then the retrieval of the bride. And Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself. And that was the language of marriage for that's exactly what the bridegroom would do. During the betrothal period, which often lasted for a year, the groom would go and prepare a place for his new bride. The the groom would often build an addition onto the house of his father, a place where the new couple could come and make their home. And when the time was right, the bridegroom would return and retrieve his bride. And in the wedding customs of Jesus' day, there would be a procession back to the place that had been prepared for the bride and a wedding banquet would be enjoyed, which is then the celebration with the bride. And there's our scripture, Revelation 19 celebration with the bride and this is what we read of in verse 7 again let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready so I asked myself some questions about this wedding feast I asked myself the question first who is the bride and the answer is the church we know the bride of Christ to be the church of Christ that is spirit baptized believers in this New Testament age, and I've already cited what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But keep your finger in Revelation 19 and go with me back to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter number five. In Ephesians five, it's a familiar text as well, beginning in verse number 25, let me read quickly, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for her as the lamb to purchase her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she, she, she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here we go, verse 32. This is a great mystery, something previously not revealed, but now given, I speak concerning Christ and the church. The bride is the church. Now keep your finger in Ephesians 5 and turn back to Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verse number eight, John says that the bride is clothed in fine linen. Verse number eight, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I think the the King James Version there says clean and white. The fine white linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You see it there. Hmm. 
I thought that we were robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not the righteousness of the saints. And that is true. Philippians chapter three, verse nine, Paul said he, that, that he might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, Paul says, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. However, we are then saved for good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works, Ephesians two, eight through 10. The white linen, the clean and the white linen in Revelation 19, verse eight, is not the positional righteousness of our standing before God, but the practical righteousness of our obedience to the Lord and whatever works endure the judgment seat of Christ remember our study last week whatever works endure the test of fire and comes forth as gold silver and precious stones becomes the threads as it were of these heavenly garments in fact someone has said what we weave on earth we wear in heaven What we weave on earth, we wear in heaven. And so with that in mind, you've kept your place in Ephesians 5. Go back to Ephesians 5. There's an important insight that I want to share. Something perhaps I've highlighted in the past that's Christ's work of sanctification in our lives. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. Here we go. Verse 26, that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, so that her garments may be clean and white, if you will, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands husbands ought to love their own wives. This is a great mystery, verse 32, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. There is a love that sanctifies And Jesus Christ's love for his bride purifies her bride so that when she stands there in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb, she is positionally robed in his righteousness. She is practically robed in these linens that are clean and white and pure. And I would argue, gentlemen, that as a husband, your love for your bride ought to be the same. In fact, if I might do a bit of premarital counseling here just for a moment, often when I meet with a couple, I say to the groom-to-be, when that day comes and you're standing down front, the front of the auditorium or the, the front of the aisle there, and the back doors open, and you behold your bride dressed in white, know that that white wedding dress is a symbol, it's a picture of purity, but it's not a picture or a symbol of purity looking backward. It's a picture of purity, it's a symbol of purity looking forward. It is her purity for which you are now responsible. And just as God, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes a defiled bride, the church, He purifies and sanctifies and washes her so that he might present her as the ways described here in Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. And so I say to the the young groom, I say, when you see your beautiful bride dressed in white, you're thinking forward and her purity, her sanctification is your responsibility. Now obviously the bride has responsibility, should prepare herself for this, this same moment, but, but none of us as the bride of Christ comes to Christ without sin. 
We come to him dirty and wretched and he robes us in his righteousness and then he sanctifies us and prepares us for that day to be a presentable bride. If you go back to Revelation 19, verse number nine, the focus now turns from the bride to the guests, verse number nine. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the, the lamb. Who are the guests? Who are the guests at this feast at this supper, at this celebration? Who has been invited to this event? Are they heavenly beings like angels? Perhaps, First Peter 1 verse 12 tells us that angels desire to look into the matter of salvation that has been afforded to us. That's a possibility. However, I would suggest that those who have been invited as guests are Old Testament saints. The saints is the the answer that I'm giving you here and, and perhaps a bit of commentary can help. On the back of your notes also here on the screen I've copied uh, something from one Bible commentary that's trustworthy. One of the false interpretations that has plagued the church is the concept that God treats all saints exactly alike. Instead a literal interpretation of the Bible distinguishes different groups of saints and here the bride is distinguished from those who are invited to the wedding supper. Instead of treating all alike, God indeed has a program for Israel as a nation and also for those in Israel who are saved. He also has a program for Gentiles in the Old Testament who come to faith in God. Continuing here, and in the New Testament, he has a program for the church as still a different group of saints. Again, in the book of Revelation, the tribulation saints are distinguished from other previous groups. It's not so much a question of difference in blessings as, as it is that God has a program designed for each group of saints which corresponds to their particular relationship to his overall program. Here the church, described as a bride, will be attended by angels and by saints who are distinct from the bride. And that last line, I think, is the interpretive key for us. And, and I, would, I would agree, but let me give you more. Reynolds Showers who uh, passed away just a, a couple years ago from the Friends of Israel Ministry. He wrote an excellent article on this matter in, in their magazine, Israel My Glory. I would commend it to you. But this is what Reynolds Showers says. According to Revelation 19.9, that's our, our text this evening, wedding guests will be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb and those who are called will be blessed. Since the wedding guests are not the bride, it must be concluded that the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb will not be part of Christ's bride, the church. But since the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb will be blessed and will be in heaven, since um, this interpretation puts the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, that would be Reynolds Showers' conclusion. There are others like Dwight Pentecost who would argue that the marriage supper of the Lamb actually happens after the second coming during the millennial, millennium. And uh, I have been persuaded both ways and I'm a little uncertain, so we're gonna go with this for tonight. <laughs> You can get clarification from Dr. Beecham or Dr. Odins after the service. Uh, th- there, are, there are good men um, that put this a little bit different in the timeline of eschatological events, but um, um, they must be believers. So we have these guests who must be believers, and he continues saying, the fact that the guests will be believers but not part of the church forces one to conclude that not all believers of all ages of history belong to the church. And I would agree with that. God has groups of believers distinct from the church. 
the souls of the Old Testament saints will already be assembled in heaven with the church, when the church arrives there at the time of the rapture and the marriage of the Lamb. Those Old Testament saints will be the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb is what Reynolds Showers writes. And, and, and this, is, this is compelling and, and this is consistent with my understanding of, of the scripture here. But envision this event. This is the time. We've all said, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask Jonah. Or when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask Samson, right? When I get to heaven, I wanna talk to that favorite Old Testament Bible character of mine. In fact, this would be that occasion and this is when that reunion is gonna happen. All of our fellow saints from all the ages will be there for the feast and what an amazing gathering this will be. And as you hear me speak and as you read the scripture, take, the, take, take a moment just to, to close your eyes and to think, to muse on this event. That's what I do during the course of a week as I study and prepare and and at times my sanctified imagination isn't always so sanctified, but, but here is something that, that I questioned this week. I said to myself, this is gonna be huge. The biggest reception in the history of the universe. And I asked myself, who is gonna serve us at this marriage supper? I'm always so grateful for those in our church family that serve meals to us at the various church functions. And I went through my mind in the the calendar of our events, we have our Easter breakfast. That's a big event. And we have new member receptions and we have funeral meals and and then that freedom celebration meal, the picnic of sorts that we have. And, And it takes an army of people, men and women, Skilled and unskilled, right? Just to serve up and feed hundreds of people. And, and so this is, this is where my, my mind went. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus taught a parable about servants who were waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast, in fact. In Luke 12, verse 37, Jesus said, blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And then I connected the dots to John chapter 13 in the upper room where Jesus was enjoying that last Passover meal with his disciples before going to the cross. And you know how that John records Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and girded himself, He poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And I thought to myself, I wonder, it would be just like Christ if in fact he was serving the marriage supper of the Lamb. I I don't know that for sure, but perhaps. I wonder if we might not be served by the Lord himself. And so then we ask a, A third question regarding this celebration, this feast, who is the bridegroom? And I'm gonna give you the answer, the lamb, the lamb. Now, in all of the energy and the excitement of a a wedding day, it seems to me that the bride gets all the attention, right? In fact, sometimes the groom is entirely forgotten. For example, there's a wedding shower for the bride. Why don't the guys ever get a wedding shower? That just doesn't seem fair to me, right? And then everyone says to the bride, oh, you look so beautiful. But whoever says to the groom, 
Hey, you're so handsome. It just, it doesn't happen. In fact, the photographer wants more pictures of the bride than the groom. You say, well, Pastor Matt, how do you know? That is my personal experience, all right? <laughs> so, so the bride is the centerpiece of our wedding. But in, the, in this case, the centerpiece of the celebration will not be the bride, but will be the groom, the groom being, the bridegroom being Jesus Christ, the lamb. Now you say, well, how do you know? Well, look at verse number 10. Revelation 19, verse number 10. And I, this is John, fell at his feet. This is the, the angel And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of this prophecy. The apostle John made a mistake and was corrected. The worship goes to the Lord. If you ever hear a knock on your door and open it to find a Jehovah Witness standing there, they will say that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they do not worship him. And folks, that makes all the difference in the world. They are telling you that they do not understand who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom. He is God, the very God And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it will be a joyous occasion, a celebration. But the focal point will not be the bride, but be the bridegroom. And there, I believe, saints from all of the ages will gather to see that marriage, union, and celebration between Jesus Christ and the New Testament church It's my persuasion that it occurs in heaven during the seven-year tribulation period that's happening here on earth. There are others that would contend that it happens after Jesus' second coming in the millennium, but um, it will be a great day. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this, this prospect. Lord, our imaginations can't even begin to scratch the surface of how glorious and wonderful and beautiful this will be. We thank you for the love of the lamb. We thank you for the price that he paid for us. We thank you for how he is sanctifying us and purifying us and preparing us for that day. We thank you that he will return for us and and, and call us to himself and take us to the place that he's prepared for us. God, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on the lamb, on the bridegroom in whose name I pray, amen, amen.